As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and I sort of almost forgot how to do the introduction. It has been that long. It has not been that long for my co-host today, Mr. Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. How you doing, buddy? I am well, Taylor. It's it's good to hear you do the intro again. I think we're easing <laughs> you back in bit by bit, step by step. Yeah. You you and I did a show. Was that last week already? Man, it was. You and I did a show, and then this week, you're back doing the intro, and it just feels right, doesn't it? It does. I know that I frequently say time has lost all meaning, especially during the pandemic. When you add a three-week-old to the equation, time really has lost. <laughs> that could have been yesterday. It could have been a month ago. I don't really know for sure. Uh, but I did sort of like assume I knew, still knew how to do the intro. And then as I started, it was like, it's definitely hen- hello and welcome. I know that much. We'll see where we go from here. Uh, but you and uh, Ryan have obviously been doing an excellent job uh, taking over and putting out content, lovely content, wonderful content, I would say. But I have felt... Like the uh, the lack of men's national team coverage in my life, as in I haven't been talking about them, and there's been a lot going on. I feel like I've missed a decent amount of Americans doing things in Europe, doing things in Major League Soccer, certainly, and I know you've been talking about that one. Uh, but I think, Joe, we had the idea to do a little bit uh, U.S. men's national team catch up from a Americans abroad perspective. Uh, so I think you've selected a few names that we we're going to take a look at and just sort of have a general chat about some of the players who are doing big things or not quite as big things, but hopefully big things in Europe. I know this wasn't your intention, but man, that was really clever of you to let people know that I made the list of players we're talking about (laughs) just in case there's somebody on that list that either people didn't want to hear about or someone that didn't make the list that people did want to hear about. That way, all that flack comes right to me. Taylor, you sly dog. That's really, really clever. And as always, uh, we really, really appreciate it and love it when people just respond to the tweeted out uh, show link with no blank, no player's <laughs> name. Uh, that's always the best way to get things across. Yes, there will be some people we don't discuss. Cameron Carter-Vickers, not on the list today. But Joe, uh, you were like, I'll throw out some possible ones. And I was just like, yep. All of those are perfect. Let's talk about all of those names. And let's do so now. Let's start in Spain. Uh, Barcelona played Valencia this past weekend. A 2-2 draw, which saw two Americans, one on either side of the pitch. Which one would you like to start with, Joe? 
Let's start with Serginho Dest. It just feels, right. it feels proper. It feels right. He started at right back for Barcelona in this 2-2 draw. I'm still not over it, and maybe this will be a theme throughout the episode. I'm still not over the fact that an American United States men's national team player is a starting right back or a starting player at all for Barcelona. That still kind of shocks me. May I interject just to say, forgive me, just to say, literally my first note is, first of all, it is insane that an American starts for Barcelona. That is my first note. So I'm with you, Joe, uh, in sharing your sort of enthusiasm and confusion about that fact. It's just it's so strange and it's so great mm-hmm. at the same time. I don't even know how to express the emotions that are associated with Dest at Barcelona. But man, he's a starter there. Sergio Roberto is out with an injury. He'll be back in the fold at some point and then that'll Certainly. go back to being a competition. But right now it's Dest's job to lose. He's getting yeah. these minutes. He started and went 90 minutes at right back for Barcelona. I could say that sentence so many times and it would feel <laughs> so good every time. But he's he's not out of place, right? He he combines, he gets forward, he combines with Messi specifically, gets up that right side and provides width on the right side of the attack. He does good things for Barcelona. He gets forward and he's willing to track back defensively, or at least he was in this game. He's becoming a more well-rounded player with Barcelona, and I, I like that development. I agree. And to your point about Sergio Roberto, yes, he will be back in the mix and I'm sure back in contention for that right back spot. And I'm not a Barcelona fan, but I think reading some of the comments and some of the sort of consternation with the current Barcelona team, I wouldn't say that he is the nailed on starter similar to say Jordi Alba on the other side of the pitch. Right. Like you can guarantee that if he's fit, he's going to be in there. I think Sergio Dest has, has made that conversation a bit more challenging, uh, for Ronald Koeman, who has many things to figure out. It does feel like, uh, but I'm with you that like if Ten years ago, you told me there's going to be an American starting for Barcelona. I think my response would have been like, yeah, and I'm sure the U.S. is going to miss the World Cup. Like, yeah, those things are going to happen. And now (laughs) here we are. Uh, I wanted to ask you, though, about what you saw from Dest specifically in this game, because he... um, I wouldn't say is directly at fault for either goal, but the first one, he does get caught in possession. It does lead to a shot that is saved and turned out for a corner. And then from that corner, Valencia go ahead 1-0. I, at first, was sort of frustrated. Not frustrated, but just like, oh, man, like, why'd you have to give that one away? Watching it again and watching this, uh, like, chunks of this game again, I actually felt like this was kind of a problem with Barcelona and less so with Serginho Dest, that it seemed like on that right-hand side, Antoine Griezmann, for example, if he was on the right-hand side ahead of Dest, would, I think, drift more central. And that left that whole, like, side for Serginho Dest to get down, but it didn't really give him much of a passing outlet. And I kept seeing him either having to dribble down there or cut it back to a center back, cut it back to somebody in the middle. But I don't think he had many outlets. And I think this was an example of that. So I'll then turn it to you to ask Joe, am I just being a, a pro Serginho Dest uh, American fan? Am I seeing this through red, white and blue glasses? No, I think you're seeing it the right way. I had this this error and it's Dest losing the ball and build up. I had this error down in my notes as as being a combination of problems, a combination okay. of issues. Dest was a little bit slack on the ball. He, he took a few too many touches. His, his first touch wasn't what it needed to be. But then also his teammates weren't in the right spot. He needs guys around him or any player needs guys around him to pass the ball through pressure, to pass the ball out of that build up space in the field and move down the field into the attack. In that moment and in other moments in this game when Dest lost the ball, I think it was those combination, that, that combination of issues. Dest didn't have guys in the right spots or Dest took too long on the ball. It's not necessarily just one of those things. I think the issue comes down to being a little bit of both of those areas. 
And, but then it becomes like, how far do we want to chase this? How far down the rabbit hole do we want to go? Because then the question becomes, could he be doing more proactively to put himself in better positions when receiving that ball? Could he be a little bit quicker in his decision making? Or does it require a little bit more tinkering from Ronald Koeman? Do you think on an individual level there's things he could be doing? Or are you mostly okay with what you've seen from him so far? As far as positioning goes, I don't think that's a big problem. I think it's more... It's more down to his tendencies, right? When you think about Sergino Dest, at least I think about him doing all of the tricks and skills that we know he loves to do, right? That's that's what he wants to have happen on the field. And it doesn't really matter to him where he is. If he's in his own defensive third and, and the ball comes to him, he wants to do something cool. If the ball comes to him in the final third, the same thing is true, right? So when he gets the ball in buildup on the right side of Barcelona's defense, as they're building out and trying to go forward, He's going to try to make something happen, or at least he's going to try to draw a defender towards him to create space for a teammate. I think that's always going to be his tendency. And so Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that you can really get that away from him, get that desire away from him, nor do I think that you necessarily should. I'm afraid, and I guess afraid is maybe a little bit too strong. I think these little turnovers are going to happen throughout Death's career, and he might get smarter about where they happen and when they happen. But I'm not sure that you can get his desire to touch the ball and to to do everything that he wants to do on the ball. I don't think you can separate that from Sergio Dest. I think that's pretty fair. Uh, I also think in watching this game and a few other ones, I, I don't think I've talked about this before, but I think I tend to naturally like put players into categories. And I'm not saying that of like superstar, world class, anything like that. It's more like with Christian Pulisic, we'll talk about him later. But I think right now in my head, he is sort of injured until he's not. So when I see him play, I'm like, oh, that's great. And then when I don't see him, I just kind of assume it's injury related. I don't know if that's fair, but that's sort of the way I think of him. We'll talk about that later. Right now with Serginho Dest, I think I I'm still in the mindset of like any time he does anything positive. I'm really, really excited about it. And simultaneously, when he's on the ball, I find myself sort of anxiously hoping that he doesn't do anything wrong. When you watch Sergio Des Joe, like, do you have a general perspective on him going in? Are you expecting him to do things? Are you sort of just kind of watching to evaluate? How do you sort of view him in a sort of general lens as a player? I think I have a baseline expectation for Sergio Dest at okay. this point. I don't think any time, even though we both kind of said it at the beginning of this conversation, I think I'm past the point where it's it's amazing and, and just a blessing to see him on the field for Barcelona. Yes, that's still incredible, and that does get me. But when I see him on the field, I expect him to do Sergio Dest things. I expect him to get forward. I expect him to to be a danger with either foot when he gets to the box, which he really was in this game. He cut in on his left side really, really strongly in the, I think it was the 61st minute in this game. And he does some dangerous things when he gets into the box with either foot. So I expect to see that stuff. I expect, or or maybe not quite expect, but I hope to see him continue to improve his defensive positioning and his willingness to run and track and pressure defensively. And we're seeing that more consistently. So yeah, the, every time that Des gets on the field for Barcelona, I think I grow more confident and more comfortable in my expectations for him. Because he's continuing to show the kind of player he is, and that's the kind of player that can make an impact at a team like Barcelona. I think that's probably the wise way to do it. For me, there's just a little bit of that disconnect because like, even if he does get caught in possession, even if he does have an errant pass or a bad cross, I'm still like, yeah, but he did that for Barcelona. Like, It's kind <laughs> of exciting versus like some second division Spanish team or something like that. So I think I'm trying to sort of be of two minds of, yes, I have this bar that he is now set that I hope he achieve, like lives up to or is able to... Uh, 
to achieve. And then simultaneously, it is still like, yeah, but he's playing for Barcelona. It's pretty, pretty great. So I think my like pro Sergio Dest bias maybe colors the way I see his achievements in this, in this regard. I think Joe, your approach to evaluating him is pretty wise. Since we've talked about him for a good little bit now, we've got lots of other names to get to. Let's switch to their opponents this weekend and let's talk about Yunus Musa, who only got 43 minutes for Valencia, I believe is on the bench for them in their game today against Sevilla. So, we would assume it's not that severe of an injury, but doesn't end up seeing it out, isn't necessarily involved in either of the goals for Valencia. What did you make of Yunus Musa in this game and maybe uh, generally speaking as well? So I think my biggest Yunus Musa takeaway from this game is actually a Greg Berhalter takeaway, if you'll indulge me. I think Please. I think so. We see Yunus Musa play right midfield for Valencia. He plays on the outside of that midfield block in a 4-4-2. That's his spot, right midfield. But Greg Berhalter watched film of Valencia and the rest of the U.S. soccer staff watched film of Valencia and decided, no, I don't think that's where he belongs. We're going to put him in midfield. And that's where we saw Yunus Musa for the United States men's national team against Wales and against Panama back in November. And and Berhalter said specifically that that is his spot with the U.S. He sees him as a more central player. When I watch him with Valencia, I see a player who can still impact the game out wide on the right side. But man, I think Greg Berhalter was so right to move him into the middle of the field mm-hmm. because I'm pretty sure that's where he can impact the game most effectively. In this game against Barcelona, Musa played that 40-something minute stretch at the beginning of the first half before coming out with the injury. And he, he gets forward down that right side and he tries to break in behind the back line and he gets on the ball a little bit, moves inside some, shows good strength, does all the Yunus Musa things that we saw in November. But he loses the ball more than I think he should. He's not comfortable out wide on the side. I think he truly does belong in the middle. And I want to give credit to Greg Berhalter for recognizing that and for actually implementing that with the United States. I think I'll give credit to you as well, because I think when we did the the preview for those games, I was convinced he was going to be deployed as that right winger. It felt like a sort of no-brainer to me, given where he plays for Valencia, as you already said. And I think, Joe, you were the one who was like, I he might be in the middle. I would, I, I don't know. We'll see what happens. And, and right you were. And I think I agree with you, right Greg Berhalter was. Because though he can be maybe a little bit wasteful for Valencia, like I see him try some stuff. I wouldn't say I see him try too much. I never have that like, oh, he might lose it. He might go off on a dribble this time and it might lead to nothing. I think especially when he was playing for the U.S. or when he operates more centrally for Valencia, I see him be really smart in picking his moments. I don't think he tries something and gets away with it and then assumes he can do it again and then gets robbed. I think he'll try it here and there, but I also see him kind of keeping the ball moving and making really smart decisions. Again, we only saw a 43 minutes or so of that this past weekend, but I didn't see anything there to make me think that he shouldn't be playing center midfield, uh, even with all the quality the U.S. has. Yeah, when he's on the ball out wide, I think he's just not quite settled in the same way that he is in the middle of the field. There were a couple moments in this game where he got the ball on the right side and he took too many touches. He took too much time to let the defense come to him. And, and as he was trying to survey the field around him and make a decision, the, the moment was gone. The opportunity was lost. And it honestly reminded me of Dest. Both of these guys played in this game. They both played on the right side for their respective teams, and they both had similar turnovers. They took too long on the ball before passing the ball and moving it along. Part of the problem, I think, for Valencia is the same problem that Barcelona had with their offensive structure, but also part of that does come down to Musa and his time on the ball and and taking too much of that time. I think every sign, every time I see him, I think this guy could be a game changer in the middle, which then makes me wonder 
when is that going to happen with Valencia? Because Valencia's coaching staff is smart. These guys know what they're doing. They're professional soccer coaches who know likely how to evaluate talent. I'm just wondering when that spot in the middle of the 4-4-2 is going to open up so that Musa can move into that central space and then have someone out wide come and take his spot. Given Valencia's financial difficulties combined with Musa's young age, it doesn't feel like he would be the one necessarily moved on uh, for a decent amount of money. So I think maybe my answer to that would be whenever somebody comes calling for one of Valencia's central midfielders yeah. and gives them a decent offer, then when there's a gap there, from what I understand, Valencia may be not as inclined to spend a ton of money to fill that gap. So maybe that's where he gets shifted over and you try somebody else on the right. That would be my hope, at least, and I wouldn't hate that. And I would have faith in Javi Gracia, which is a strange thing to say because I don't think of him as the most successful manager, certainly in his time in the Premier League. But I've been really impressed by how he's been able to get this Valencia team, a team that were sort of gutted and are financially strapped and not particularly deep. He has them playing well. He has them staying motivated. When we've seen other teams in this situation fall off entirely, Villarreal a couple years ago had this exact same situation and we're relegated for it. So to credit to Javi Gracia, and, and I agree with you that I think he's smart to know how to utilize Musa, and I have faith in him to continue to know how, how to utilize him. For you, Joe, when you watch Musa, and I want to go back to Dest as well, and maybe this can be a kind of a general thing from this show. When you're watching these two players, either from an individual growth, how you want to see them progress standpoint, or from a U.S. men's national team standpoint, Say we have them, like, this weekend, we watch both of their games. What are the things you want to see them doing or not doing or adjusting? Or how do you sort of evaluate their growth? Is there something that you think Serginho Dest could be doing that would make him, like, just that much better of a performer, either for club or country? And same thing for Yunus Musa. So let's start with Dest. When thinking about how he can grow at Barcelona, I think the biggest thing that I'm looking for is his ability to contribute offensively. He scored a goal, at least one goal this season, I think, for Barcelona already. He does get involved in the attack, but I want to see him get even more involved, which Mm -hmm. is a big ask when Lionel Messi is on your team. But seeing him become more and more of a factor and more and more of a part of that Barcelona attack, almost that forward line, because that's what he Mm -hmm. becomes when they move forward into the final third, getting Dest on the ball more is what I want to see because he can do things that even even other guys in the starting 11 for Barcelona, and I'm not just talking about the goalkeeper and the center backs, hmm. Des can do things on the ball that other players in the attack can't do. And seeing him get more touches and get more opportunities to impact the game in that space, for me, means that Barcelona and those other players in the lineup are recognizing his ability to impact things and recognizing his talent and his skill. And the more that happens, I think the, the more confident Des is going to become in a super confident Serginho Dest is something that I don't think a lot of defenders in the world can stop. I would agree. And before you get to Yunus Musa, I, uh, I wanted to double down on that idea of him getting more involved in the attack and facilitating more attacks. Because what I saw pretty regularly, as I said earlier, is Antoine Griezmann, if he's on the right, drifting more central. And the times when Barcelona would have a bit of sustained possession, Dest would get forward. A couple different times I saw Griezmann look out wide and then sort of cut it back and try to operate centrally or try to pick out Busquets or Messi or Pedri or somebody like that. And I do wonder if you have Dest not just bombing down that line, but screaming for the ball. I don't think Barcelona want to cross. I think that's part of why that ball is not going wide. But even if he's getting a through ball in and then he cuts it back and it just opens up that more space, I think you're right that the more involved he is, even if it's not deliberate or like um directly creating goal scoring chances, but just being in and around the attack, demanding the ball more, pulling defenders out. I think all of that helps facilitate Barcelona scoring and certainly then facilitates him getting more starts. 
with Eunice Musa, if we're good to move on forward, because sure. I agree with everything you just said there. I think that is going to continue to show Des value to his teammates and to Barcelona, and then that's only going to benefit him. Flipping the script and looking at the other American in this game, Eunice Musa, I'm torn a little bit about his growth curve and, and what I want to see from him, because the biggest thing I want to see is not in Musa's control. I want to see him in more central spaces, and that's not really going to happen unless Valencia move him into the middle, which is possible, right? We talked about that already. That's not going to happen unless they move him into that central spot or or if Valencia play in a lot more games where they can control the ball. Against Barcelona, they didn't have a lot of the ball, which makes a, a lot of sense. Instead, yeah. it was them defending in that 4-4-2 block. Musa even would track back almost as a right back, a right wing back at times to cope with Barcelona's attacks down their left side. Barca's left, Valencia's right. If Valencia have more control, more possession, more time on the ball, that means that a right back can get forward and overlap and move Musa inside. And that's what I really want to see. I want to see him get touches in, if not the middle channel of the field, then maybe that right half space, that more interior area. That then would allow him to get touches in areas where I think he will get them with the United States, and he can continue to develop in those pockets of space. But until that happens, I think continuing to see Musa get more comfortable on the ball, do the best that he can out on the right side and impact games from there, that's also fine. But yeah, ultimately, I want to see him in the middle. All right. Uh, well, we've talked about two Americans thus far. Joe, I agree with all of your points. And I, and I really like this idea because... I think I do well when I have specific things to watch for. When I'm just watching a game generally or watching a player generally, I can zone out or sort of get caught on other th- other incidents and I might miss that sort of like, oh, he made that overlapping run this time and got the ball. So I like the idea of having kind of clear things to keep an eye on. And I think we have uh, some for those two players. I'm sure we'll have more for the other players we're going to talk about. But first, let's talk about today's sponsor. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Credible. Credible Credible.com is an online marketplace that allows borrowers with student loan debt to see refinancing rates across a variety of lenders. If you've got student loan debt, you could benefit from using Credible. I mean, there are so many benefits to refinancing your student loans. With a lower rate, you could save on interest or lower your monthly payment, which means more money in your pocket. I tend to think that's a good thing. I like more money in my pocket. I would agree. You can also get debt-free faster, and you can consolidate all of your student loan bills in one place. Some benefits of using Credible, uh, in addition to what we've talked about, to refinance your student loans are that you see actual pre-qualified rates from multiple lenders, whereas with some online marketplaces, you'll get ranges of rates or ballpark estimates, and it only takes a couple of minutes to check rates. And checking rates does not, underlined, impact your credit. They never sell your data, so you won't receive spam and phone calls from dozens of lenders. Please visit Credible.com slash TSS. That's C-R-E-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash tss and when you refinance your student loans via credible they'll give you a 200 dollars gift card all you have to do is fill in a few pieces of info to check what rates you're eligible for 
You can only get this offer through our show's URL. So again, that is Credible.com slash TSS. Finance your student loans and start saving. Message from Credible Operations, Inc. Not available in all states. Terms and conditions apply. Visit Credible.com slash TSS for more details. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Thank you to Credible for sponsoring today's episode. Thank you to 1010 for sponsoring today's episode. You may have read about this in the New York Times or Forbes. We're excited to tell you about it. 1010 is an exclusive collection of 10 one-of-a-kind engagement rings designed by 10 of the most distinctive designers working today. Using only diamonds responsibly sourced from Botswana, 10 design masters have each produced a uniquely beautiful commitment ring, launching exclusively on January 18th at BlueNile.com. And when they're gone, they're gone. I mean, we all know that the diamond engagement ring is iconic. It's a timeless expression of the deepest commitment between two people. And with 1010, it's been beautifully re-envisioned in the hands of 10 modern designers working exclusively with sustainably sourced diamonds. So if you're making 2021 plans or looking for a unique and meaningful way to celebrate Valentine's Day, you're definitely going to want to check this out. Again, this exciting limited edition collection of diamond engagement rings launches on January 18th, and you can preview it exclusively at BlueNile.com. Thank you very much to Blue Nile for sponsoring this episode and 1010 and their 10 designers as well. Joe, do you feel like I should have given you and Ryan both diamond rings as a sort of commitment to, <laughs> you know, show how, uh, how bonded we are? I mean, that would have been that would have been a decision, certainly. And the, the thought would have been great. But I think you did just fine without the, uh, without the diamond commitment. Ring. That would have been a decision. All right. Let's talk about uh, some more Americans. Let's talk about two more players who were playing against each other this past weekend. Let's start with DeAndre Yedlin. Joe, I'm going to say some things about DeAndre Yedlin now that I was not prepared to say uh, until I watched this game. And the primary takeaway is he looks good. I I really was not expecting him to look as sharp as he did to look. He still has the pace. Obviously, the acceleration just as important as the pace, the way he's able to sort of get out of sticky situations on occasion and uses that just quick turn of turn of foot of the, the, the speed to just get away five yards and then complete a pass. But speaking of his passing, I also thought some some of it was very, very smart and some of it was very, very like risky, but smart as well. I saw him playing in there's one in the the second half, I think it was, that he plays like an interior ball into Joe Linton, who probably could have done better with it. But it felt like the type of pass that I'm not used to from Yedlin. And overall, this felt like a more kind of standard, traditional right-back performance of staying home, doing the defensive work, but then intermittently getting involved in the attack, but not getting overly involved. I liked a lot of what I saw from DeAndre Yedlin. I'm willing to be brought back down to earth by you if you fundamentally disagree. So I, I turn it over to you now, Joe. I don't fundamentally disagree. He was pretty good, right? I don't think he was great in this game, and I don't think he changed this game for Newcastle in any way. They drew with Fulham, Mm -hmm. which is still kind of a mediocre place to be from a team result standpoint. But this was Yedlin's first start of the Premier League season. This was his first real chance to come in and impact the game from the very start of a match. And he... He did pretty well. He didn't do anything really wrong. He mm-hmm. he moved up that right side doing DeAndre Yedlin things. He had that speed you talked about. He did have a couple of nice forward aggressive passes that I didn't really expect to see from him. He looked like a guy who could still impact a team from that right fullback spot. And honestly, 
I really didn't expect that either. I thought we'd kind of, and by we, I guess I mean the U.S. and Newcastle. Mm-hmm. I thought we'd kind of moved on from the DeAndre yep. Yedlin era, but he is only 27 years old. There's still yeah. time in the DeAndre Yedlin era to be to be seeing him on the field for club and country. Because there are, I, I take your point, because there are with certain players who seem like maybe they're about to be moved on. Maybe he's coming back to MLS. Maybe he'll move to another team in Europe. But like you can get those games where they do get that rare start because somebody's injured or the coach wants to try something different. And then you see the evidence for yourself of, oh, yeah, this is why maybe they don't trust him week in and week out. And to your point, I don't think this was a lights out performance. I don't think he he turned heads or changed minds necessarily. Uh, but he did, I think, give me at least some more to think about when it comes to the national team. And maybe he gave uh, Steve Bruce something to think about as well. Just that I thought he he didn't stand out in a negative way to steal, I think, Jurgen Klopp's phrase talking about a very young Christian Pulisic. Um, and that's maybe what you want in this type of scenario as a player who we think could stand out for the wrong reasons, just sort of looking like he belongs there. Uh, I, I think that maybe is why I'm a bit more positive because there were the moments where like, oh, that was a bit of a heavy touch or like, oh, he overcommitted there and now he left that space open. So there's certainly some vulnerabilities to his game, which makes it hard for me to ask you the question I asked you about Eunice Musa and Serginio Dest. I'm still going to. I'm just acknowledging that it's probably harder for you given the small sample size and given where he is in his career, where we presume he is in his career as well, are there things you think DeAndre Yedlin could do to enhance his chances of getting called uh, getting called in by Greg Berhalter or maybe getting looks from other Premier League teams or other uh, decently large teams in Europe? Honestly, for the U.S. at least, outside of going and, and kidnapping Brian Reynolds or kidnapping <laughs> Julian Araujo, I don't think there's a lot that Yedlin can do to increase his stock with the national team. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say, I want to be clear, That's not to say that he doesn't have potentially a role to play for Greg Berhalter, especially as we look to 2021, where there's so many different competitions happening. Yedlin being in the lineup for Newcastle and still being a part of that team probably means that Berhalter, well, it definitely means that Berhalter is aware of those games and is watching his film and is thinking about how Yedlin could fit in things. I don't think, though, that from this game or really from anything that Yedlin could do from a development standpoint or even just from a playing standpoint, getting minutes, regardless of how those minutes go, I don't think there's a lot that he can do to increase his stock with the national team or with Newcastle. I think at this point at 27 in his in his upper 20s, he is who he is. I don't think we've seen a lot of change in his game from three years ago to now, and I don't think we're going to see a lot of change in his game from 27, where he is now, to three years in the future at 30. The only thing I would say, like, and obviously I'm using this game as a pretty predominant sample size, is that I I did feel like he didn't get as involved in the attack to the extent that he has in the past. And I think of him primarily as that sort of attacking fullback, that he's the player you want as it's he was always we always get that question of couldn't he be a wingback so we can utilize his his speed, but also his attacking ability and his ability to get in behind. And I think that's what he's always been in my mind is a very attacking fullback who maybe is going to be a little bit suspect at times defensively and I think that's why him being more defensive in this game stood out to me because if Greg Berhalter did call him in I think I wouldn't see him quite so much as this like oh yeah he's like a late game attacking substitute if we need to create some chances from deep and I think of him more as like maybe he's a fullback you put in to see the game out and have him stay home but be that outlet if you need him to be that's a possibility I think I take your point though that right now it feels like Sergio Dest has the right back or maybe the left back spot whichever one he prefers Reggie Cannon seems to be higher up in the order uh, there's other names as you've already mentioned who are in there as well so I think it would take 
a string of consistent performances from DeAndre Yedlin, at least this season, to get a call-up from Greg Berhalter or consistent call-ups from Greg Berhalter. So maybe it's just finding a place where he can can get those minutes and can sort of prove that if not if if he's not going to develop, then at the very least he isn't sort of in the decline that we might have thought. Is is that a fair takeaway that like maybe it's just either get minutes with Newcastle or find a place to get minutes, which I guess has been sort of the the thing we've been saying about DeAndre Yedlin for about a year now. It seems fair, right? He is who he is as a player, and that's right now he's a, a pretty solid right back, regardless of the level. If that's a Premier League right back, if that's another top league in Europe where he's able to get more minutes, but maybe with a team that's even. Well, this might be a bit of a big ask, but who's lower down the table and is looking for someone to come in and play as a right back. DeAndre Edlin is who he is. He's a limited player, but he's still a guy who can do a job in a number of different roles, not a number of different positions, but a number of different roles on that right side at that right back spot. And he's a guy who I think is going to still be a part of the picture for Newcastle in the U.S. moving forward. What about uh, his counterpart uh, in this game, uh, Anthony Robinson, who's starting for Fulham, regularly starting for Fulham at this point? He has 11 appearances on the season, 11 of them being starts, uh, and has been consistently doing so since October. But I think I am now more hesitant with Anthony Robinson because in his first few appearances for the national team, I felt like he was a little bit hard done by. I feel like he was kind of left out on occasion, didn't have a lot of cover. I also don't think he necessarily covered himself in glory when we saw him more recently. Uh, so where are you on Anthony Robinson? It's why earlier when I was like, yeah, Serginho Dest is the right back, but maybe the left back. I'm not really sure yet. I, I don't know if Anthony Robinson has yet done enough for me to feel confident that he can do that left back job with Serginho Dest on the right. I'm not confident in Anthony Robinson. I don't think many people are confident in him with the United States men's national team right now. But I also want to be patient. I think about Anthony Robinson at that left back spot. He's come into these camps at the U.S. And and thinking about his first few appearances, he didn't have that cover, right? He was blitzed by high quality opposing attacking players. Then thinking more recently, that that November camp that Berhalter held in Europe, they had, what, one or two days to train really Mm -hmm. and instill the ideas that Berhalter wanted that team to be playing with. It's hard to assess Robinson from that sample size. It's just difficult to do. And then... We look at him with Fulham, and he he looks good at some things. He looks not so good at other things. But I still am waiting to see him really get a fair chance, a fair run out with the national team, because until he gets that, you know, few starts in a row or a longer camp, like essentially he's getting with Fulham just over a much longer period of time, I think it's harder to judge his ability to impact the men's national team. Uh, for me, I find when I watch him that there is... I can't find a better way to put it other than like an awkwardness to his game. And I think this is a probably reference for a very select few. Joe, do you remember a guy named Gabriel Oberton? I'm guessing you probably do not. I do not. That's fair. He, I think, played like eight minutes for Manchester United uh, <laughs> in like 2012 or something like that. But he was a guy who I was convinced, I think he was like meant to be the Ronaldo replacement. Obviously, he was not. But I remember watching him and he was very fast and very upright in his posture, but sort of ran in straight lines. It's a criticism I think Daryl had of Breck Shea. It was a lot of straight line running. If you ask him to do other things, things get a little bit murky. And with Robinson, when I watch him, he is very upright. He has very like erect posture when he's on the ball, which I think is part of how he, it's the mechanics of how he runs. It's what allows him to be so quick. I loved him and DeAndre Edlin in a foot race, and it was sort of a draw. I thought that was pretty interesting. But I also think because of that, this is maybe unfair, and I don't mean for it to be harsh. It's just when you're that 
that upright, there is a rigidity to the way you play. And I would encourage people to watch and see if they agree. But I feel like sometimes when he gets the ball, because of how upright he is, he has to sort of like cut it back and then play it back. And it's very sort of straight legged. And, and there, there's not a lot of fluidity to it at times. And I think that is what stands out to me because I kept watching it and being like, why is there an extra touch there? Why is that ball maybe a couple feet out with that first touch than it should be? And I think there's, there's a lack of sort of flow. And it's insane to say that about a player who is as quick and as fast as he is. Those are two different things, but I think he is both of them. But there's also just a little bit of awkwardness that I wish could be ironed out so that some of those decision, that, that decision making is just a little bit faster. Maybe I'm putting the cart before the horse and it's the decision making needs to be faster as opposed to the mechanics. But that was just one thing that stood out to me. I don't know if you have thoughts on his posture, Joe, but that's something I wouldn't mind seeing is his decision-making, especially his his passing, just get a little bit faster. Man, that's such a great point, talking about his build and how he moves. He kind of looks like you you draw a stick figure on a piece of paper. Exactly. If you could bring that stick figure to life and, and put him on the field for Fulham at left wing back, that would pretty much be Anthony Robinson, which is impressive given how good he is, right? He's a really, he's a really solid left back. He can get forward down that yeah. side and he does good things. But he doesn't do a lot of different kinds of good things. He is exactly what you said he is, Taylor. He's rigid with how he does everything, and that limits him. He doesn't have a lot to his game in the final third except crossing or or a quick one-two and then a cross into the box. That's what led to Fulham's first goal in this game against Newcastle. It was mm-hmm. Robinson versus Yedlin, and, and Robinson does a little one-two, gets the ball back and crosses it in. Yedlin deflects it. It's a corner kick. Fulham get the corner, and it's a Newcastle own goal off of that set piece that gets Fulham on the board first. Robinson finds ways to impact the game in his rigid posture with his defined skill set, but I think that does limit him, and I honestly don't think that's going to change, though. I don't think his posture and his approach to moving is something that you can rebuild. You know, like in the NBA, players will go in and rebuild their jump shots. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure you can rebuild everything about Anthony Robinson's movement because I think that's a bigger deal than just changing how someone shoots. That's fair. And so let me let me soften it a bit to say I don't think he needs to necessarily change the fundamental aspects of the mechanics of his running, but I think uh, like I've seen this with with other players as well. There is a a deliberateness to their actions that can border on overly obvious. And sometimes when I see him cut it back, you can almost see him say like cut back and now pass the ball. Like he's talking to himself to make these things happen and there there's not of, as much of that sort of instinctive improvisation that you might see Serginho Dest when a ball comes in, he might try to like scuff it with the outside of his right foot instead of taking a a touch with his left foot and then passing it backwards with his right foot. And I just, I don't see as much of that from Anthony Robinson. That could be a Fulham thing. That could be his brief is to make sure you secure the ball and don't try risky things. But I I just, I would like to see some of that like decision making some of that passing rate just increase the ball move a little bit faster off of his foot so that it, i then feel like when he's put in a situation where say he does have to patrol that entire left side for the us national team i think he's able to do so rather than just relying on his pace uh, or maybe staying back and not being as adventurous but knowing when he can pick his spots and how to pick his spots with the mechanics he does have maybe that's a bit too harsh but it's it's just the thing that stands out to me because I find myself going from a person who really really wants Anthony Robinson to succeed and thinks he can to watching him and being like but what is it what is it about you that I I just have a little bit of hesitation on and I think that's it and maybe that can't be changed you're right but I, I think if I see him maybe play a one-time pass a 
a, like every other pass or every like five passes, I think I'll just be a little bit more confident with Anthony Robinson. Right now, Anthony Robinson seems like a guy you can game plan for pretty easily. Yeah, I think yes, that's I think exactly. that's what yes. you're getting at. And I noticed yes. the same Thank thing. Thank you for saying it very succinctly. No, well, I mean, I had the entire time to think while you were talking and explaining <laughs> the actual merits of the point. But yeah, when you watch Robinson, I only yes. really noted. When he gets into the attack, yes. I really only noted two things that he does. He one-twos with another attacker on that left side, or he crosses the ball in. Sometimes he does both back-to-back. That doesn't take a lot of brain power to defend against defensively. Uh, that's a little bit redundant, but we're going to go with it. It's not something that really blows your mind in terms of how he approaches the attack. Not that it's not effective, because it is. Sometimes it's very hard to stop one-twos and those quick movements. But yeah, it's it's rigid. It's almost a little bit predictable. And I do think if we're going and continuing with that theme of things we're looking for for these players in the future, developing other elements of his game, Mm -hmm. even within his his movement structure, that's something I'm going to watch for from Anthony Robinson during the rest of this season, next season, the year after that. Just as long as we see Anthony Robinson play soccer, I'm curious to see how he develops his offensive game. Joe? The nail has been hit squarely on the head. I think you've made a great point, and I think we can leave Anthony Robinson for now unless you have anything else you wanted to mention about either of those two players. No, I am I am all set on my end, Taylor. Then I am all set to talk about Weston McKinney, and I am really excited to do so because I don't think... Like, I certainly haven't talked about him very much in the last few weeks, but even before that, I think he was kind of mentioned in passing here and there. I don't think I spent a lot of time watching McKinney talking about him for Juventus. And I would say this, if you watch him with Juve, at least lately, you can practically see how much he hated playing for Schalke near the end of that time. Like, it is... It is just crazy to watch him. I've said insane about one player. I'm going to say crazy about his development here because he's just so much more lively. Watching their 4-0 win this past weekend against Parma, I believe it was, he's just, he, he wants the ball. He's demanding it. He's interacting with his teammates more. There's a swagger to him. There's a confidence that we've seen with the national team, but I feel like I saw it in a slaughter of Cuba, not playing for Juventus in Serie A. And to see him be a sort of dynamic driving leadership force for Juventus, again, similar to Serginho Dest, is not a thing I ever really would have thought. I would have thought Weston McKinney is like, oh, maybe he goes to Hertha Berlin. Maybe he goes to Southampton and we see what he can do. And hopefully he does well. He was sort of a hopefully it goes well player. And I wasn't prepared for how quickly we've gone from that to it is going well. And I think it will continue to go well. Man, I'd completely forgotten about the Southampton and Hertha Berlin stuff, right? I remember hopping on a Southampton podcast to talk about Weston McKinney's potential move there. And yeah, a lot of my verbiage was, you know, hopefully, potentially, he could fit. And now that seems so far away. It seems so distant because he's starting for Juventus. I'm not willing to say necessarily that he's an every game starter or that he is the guy or one of the guys in midfield. But man, he's inching closer and closer to Mm -hmm. that, isn't he? He's getting closer and closer to that level, and he looks good doing it. He's impacting games for Juve in real tangible ways, and I'm surprised. I was wrong if you'd asked me about it. I would have said this wasn't going to happen. I know nothing. Weston McKinney is a very good soccer player, trending towards a really, really good soccer player. I have a feeling that Weston McKinney, uh, like I hear this about young players all the time and I would say it about him that like his brain is a little bit like a sponge. And I think if you're giving him instructions, he is going to listen. I think he's a very coachable player. I think the problem with Schalke was 
Schalke, basically, <laughs> that you've got different managers coming in. You don't have a lot of investment. He's being asked to do one thing one game, a very different thing the next. And I think he was doing the best he could when one week he's a right wing back, then he's a number six, then he's a number eight. Now he's a number 10 somehow. Maybe he's a second striker the week after that. And I think he was doing as well as he could be. But the big knock on him was sort of jack of all trades, master of none. I think you said that about him on this very show. And I think what we're seeing is when you put him in a team with specific instructions and a very specific idea of what he needs to do, he can execute that very well. And when he's not having to focus his brain on one week, he's a right back the next week, he's a second striker. I think the consistency and regularity of what's being asked and the minutes he's getting allow him to continue to grow, if not thrive. Yes, he still makes mistakes. Yes, there are still some silly moments. I think a lot of those, though, are sort of mistakes or moments that Andrea Pirlo, his coach, will not care about or doesn't mind as much as if he were routinely trying too much in the defensive third, in their own defensive third, if he kept trying to kind of carry the ball out and kept getting caught. Those sort of repetitive mistakes that you can tell would frustrate a manager, I don't see as much with him. Instead, I see him trying different stuff and being confident in what he is trying and that he's not getting yelled at or berated by teammates who, I mean, he's playing alongside Cristiano Ronaldo, and I see, if not an appreciation for what he's doing, certainly a respect for McKinney coming in and trying stuff. I don't see Ronaldo screaming at him and demanding the ball every single time. I see a willingness from his teammates to sort of let him do stuff and trust that he can pull things off. And again, not a thing I really expected from him when he moved to Juventus uh, at first. There was a moment in this game, I can't remember if it was in the first half or the second half, it doesn't really matter. McKenney was on the right side of the field, or at least the right side of midfield, and he hit a long diagonal over to the left side where Ronaldo was, and McKenney overhit it. He overhit it by six, eight, ten yards. Mm-hmm. And Ronaldo turned around and, and almost motioned as if, you know, here's where I wanted it, not where you put it. But he didn't, you know, motion angrily. He didn't walk away in anger at that ball from Weston McKenney. I think it ended with a thumbs up or at least some sort of obvious appreciation or acceptance of what happened. And that's me reading way into one play. But I think it it speaks to what you're saying, though, right, Taylor? It speaks to that respect that McKenney seems to have earned there in the locker room on the field. It speaks to his ability to improve and become a real Mm -hmm. contributing part of this Juve team. We're seeing those moments both when he actually does good things on the field And when he does things that aren't so good on the field, those are all speaking to his impact on this team. A, a, a big truth, I think, in, in soccer and probably most sports is that like, if your coach is yelling at you, it isn't necessarily a bad thing. When you need to worry as a player is when your coach stops trying, when they stop communicating, when it's just like, whatever, I I knew that was going to happen. Oh, well, that sort of means they know your limitations. They know you're not going to go much further than that. And I would extend that to players as well, that if Ronaldo kind of turned, saw who played that ball and just walked off, that would be a bad thing. If he turned and screamed and gesticulated wildly, I think that would also show the frustration. But I don't think you're drawing too many conclusions from that one moment, because I think it does speak volumes that instead of it being, I'm screaming at you or I'm turning and walking away in disgust. It's sort of like almost a like, hey, man, you know better than that. I wanted it here. And it's just like a constructive conversation. And I've seen that from players who one minute will give that con- constructive feedback. And then when another player does something similar, you will hear them yell at them. And I think you can see the kind of relationship or lack of patience and what that says about those relationships. And it does feel like McKenney has ingratiated himself with that team. I think he's also a very good locker room presence. He has been for the national team. I think he was for Schalke. I would assume the same 
same extends to Juventus. So I think there's just a lot of positivity there in a time when I, I this move in the beginning was a big head scratcher for me, not just because I don't understand why Schalke were OK with loaning him when they desperately needed money. But it didn't seem like a move that was going to lead to him getting lots of minutes and growing as a player. And now here we are where he's player of the year uh, for the Nat for uh, U.S. men's soccer. And I think that's very much justified. I've got a question for you, Taylor. I sure. I watch Weston McKenney and I see things that he does on the ball that kind of blow me away. And you alluded to mm-hmm. this or mentioned it earlier, but is Weston McKenney one of the most skillful guys in the men's national team player pool? Because every time I watch him, I swear he does something new and some skill that I just wasn't ready for. I think he is a very skillful player. I would say slightly maybe more important than that when in terms of my line of thinking is that he's probably the most confident player I think the U.S. has right now Uh, at least at like at club level I think of him like I'm looking at the other names we've talked about and will still talk about and and McKinney just feels like a player who you're right isn't a guaranteed starter I'm not saying he is that's it he's going to be Juve's captain for the next 10 years but I think some of the stuff he's trying it is certainly dependent on him having the skill to execute it, but it's also him sort of like, like I always go with the Seinfeld, I'm Keith Hernandez. Like it's him being like, I'm Weston McKinney. I'll try this. And there is a certain something to when you're feeling it, when you're confident, you're more likely to try stuff and believe you can pull it off. Whereas if you don't quite know your role or you don't want to get in trouble, you don't want to get yelled at, maybe you don't go for little like lofted passes into the 18 or just little like backheeled flicks and reverse passes and things that I don't know if he goes for if he doesn't have that swagger, if he doesn't have that confidence. So I think it's a combination of him Already having a, a, a decent skill set that I think has been improved by his time in Italy. And then his confidence certainly taking a massive boost. You add those two together. And I think that is what allows him to try some of the stuff he, he goes for and occasionally slash frequently pull it off. In passing, you just mentioned both of the plays that I wanted to talk about. You talked about a little chipped lob pass into the yep. box and a little back heel. I'm assuming those are both in our notes. And I want to run through them quickly because these plays were were awesome and I would encourage listeners to go watch them. 12th minute, McKenney gets on the ball wide on the right side of the field and cuts in on his left foot and plays that little chipped, you know, lofting ball into the box with the outside of his right foot. So mm-hmm. he's cut in on his on his left, then shifts the ball to his right foot and, and almost bends that in for Aaron Ramsey, who doesn't connect with the ball. But man, what a what a drive into the box and what an incisive little pass into the box to create what could have been a chance for Juve. And then before the half ends, it's the 45th minute, McKinney has a little back heel on the right side of the field to spring a Juventus transition attack. What a pair of skillful moments, right? Like mm-hmm. what what a set of plays that illustrate his ability to impact a game. I didn't think McKinney had this stuff in his bag until he started doing stuff like that this year with the national team and now with Juventus. And now I'm thinking maybe I was just blind over the last couple of years and no. he's always been doing it. That. <laughs> okay, okay. Then that, that makes me feel better because he's he's crazy. No, because I, I think a lot of people who whose opinion I respect when it comes to tactics and player evaluation have had like similar knocks, like not saying to necessarily what you've said, but just generally speaking, I think the jack of all trades, master of none, the we're not sure what his best position is. I'd like his decision making to improve. I'd like his his passing uh, rates to be improved. Like, I think there have been like definitive knocks against his game that I think we've seen maybe be diminished a little bit. And maybe that's confidence. Maybe it's kind of a uh, an awareness of what's being asked of him. Maybe it's just the skills get set improving. But I keep going back to like that outside of the foot pass you mentioned. There's such a fundamental difference in 
as you're trying to play that ball, thinking like, oh, I hope I do this. Like, it would be great if it did happen. Like, I'm going to try. Like, there, like that sort of, like, I hope I don't mess this up. You're saying you're going to mess it up. That's in part, like, that's part of that thought process, whether or not you mean for it to. Whereas, like, oh, I'm doing this. Like, you can just see that he knows he can do it and he backs himself to pull it off. And that difference in thought is just so fundamental to playing successful soccer at the level that he's playing. And, and I just think that level of confidence, that level of decision making is not a thing we've seen from him previously. Maybe we've seen it in little moments or, as I said earlier, against opposition where he has the time and the kind of ability to just do whatever he wants. Cuba aren't going to get near him or aren't going to cause him problems. But I did not expect to say the same thing of Atalanta or Parma. And yet here we are. Weston McKinney is a good soccer player. And I didn't necessarily <laughs> expect to be saying that sentence genuinely yeah. a couple of years ago or even six months ago. But man, he is he is very good at kicking that soccer ball. That he is, <laughs> Mr. Lowry. Uh, we've got a few more Americans to discuss. Final thing on Weston. Uh, I'm calling him by his first name now since I've said McKinney 14 times so far. Is there anything else that you would like to see? Or do you just want to see him continue to do what he's doing? And then we can see if he can do it consistently in the long term. Get on the field and keep doing what you're doing. And then that consistency is going to come over the next couple of seasons. That's really all I can ask. I think that might be all anybody can ask of him right now. All right. Well, then I will consider him discussed. We've got three more Americans, at least three more uh, by my notes uh, to discuss. But first, let's talk about HelloFresh. You can get fresh pre-measured ingredients and mouthwatering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I'm so excited about it that I banged the desk with my chair. <laughs> HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking easy, fun and affordable. I don't know which of those is more important, but I'm inclined to think that at least these days, for me, easy and fun is of fundamental importance when I have either like a crying baby in my arms as I'm trying to cook something or have 10 minutes while there is a formerly crying baby who's asleep and I'm trying to whip something up very quickly. HelloFresh does allow you to do that very, very fast. And in the past when we've used it, we have been able to make meals, my wife and I, pretty quickly, especially working together. You can usually bring them together in under 20 minutes, thereabouts. And that is the timeline you would need to get a meal done fast, to get it on the table, to eat that meal and then go back to the baby before they start crying again. And I also want to add, because I don't have personal baby experience to no? add to my uh, my participation in this conversation, Taylor, <laughs> but I do want to add stress-free. HelloFresh makes things stress-free. Yep. They really do. They offer convenient, no-contact delivery to your doorstep for easy home cooking with the family. And that, for me, is huge right now. We're in a pandemic. We're still in a pandemic, even though it feels like it's been 18 bajillion years at this point. That no contact mm -hmm. delivery to your doorstep means that I don't have to go out, means that you, dear listener, don't have to go out. And right now that can make a really, really big difference. It certainly can. And then I think when it comes to not going out, that extends to my exercise uh, regimen. It has certainly slackened off, but my desire to eat food has not. And that can be a problem because if I'm making, I don't know, like a, a side of potatoes for dinner, I feel like I tend to make like six portions instead of maybe the two that would be necessary. And then you've got leftovers that you're never going to eat. And you don't need to eat maybe three servings of potatoes with HelloFresh because the recipes are all pre-portioned and you've got the, the steps, the guide, so you know what it's supposed to look like and how much they're supposed to be, it does just make it that much easier to eat healthy, to eat the right amount of food, uh, and to have that food be delicious, fresh, and I would say aesthetically pleasing. The food looks good when it's done. <laughs> okay, yeah. 
I do want to add one more thing on HelloFresh. Please. They're committed to donating to those in need. And this is this is just downright awesome. So far in 2020, they've donated 3.5 million meals. I mean, and you can help with HelloFresh's Beyond the Box program too, where you give nutritious meals to those experiencing food insecurity with just a couple of clicks in their app. How cool is that? That's pretty cool. So you can, uh, like contribute to others getting HelloFresh and getting good quality meals. And obviously you can contribute to yourself, uh, getting those good quality meals, uh, by going to HelloFresh.com slash ADTSS and use the code ADTSS to get $80 off, including free shipping. One more time, go to HelloFresh.com slash ADTSS, 80TSS and use the code 80TSS to get $80 off, including free shipping. Thank you very much to HelloFresh for sponsoring this episode of the Total Soccer Show. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Joseph Lowry, let's talk about some more Americans. Let's start with Nico Joachini. Joe's going to talk about Joachini now, uh, who I like I... I think I watched his footage last and it was a sort of important reminder for me. And I don't mean this in a disrespectful way of like, we're talking about McKinney at Juve, Dest at Barcelona, Robinson and Yedlin playing in the Premier League. And, and I did like, I guess I felt the need to sort of calm myself a little bit because we're talking about the second division in France. Yes, it's Joachini scoring and creating opportunities, but I, I found myself like kind of consistently battling against that. Like, yeah, but is that quite the same? Like, is it the same as Josh Sargent? Maybe not scoring, maybe not getting an assist, but looking good in the Bundesliga. Do you have that same hesitation or do you have ways that you go about watching players like this who maybe aren't in the most competitive league, but are still doing exciting things? I have similar hesitation. Right. I have that same little 
bell that goes off in my head to remind me that I need to be measured when looking at all these players, but especially when looking at players who aren't playing at the highest level. When I watch Nico Joachini, who who did score on Friday, which is good, right? We mm-hmm. want number nines to be scoring goals. When I watch Ideally. players in, in Ligue 2 or in the, the Dutch second division or even in different parts of Major League Soccer that just simply aren't equal to the Premier League or to La Liga or to Serie A, you have to add in the context. I have to add in context. And so when I'm watching Joachini, when I watched Joachini, I'm not looking to translate every single thing that I see and immediately plug it into the national team picture for the next game against Mexico, right? Those levels aren't the same. Instead, when I watch Joachini or other younger guys, I'm looking to see what they do, how good they are at what they do, and how that fits into either a higher level of play or more often for me, at least, the men's national team. So when I watch Joachini and when you watch Joachini Taylor, I look for those basic tendencies. Where does he go on the field? What does he do when he has the ball? What does he do when he doesn't have the ball? And all those things for a number nine are important because they usually have the ball in some pretty important spots. So as a really long-winded answer to your question, yes, it's got to be measured and filled with context when I'm watching guys like Joe Akini. I think where my confusion from, because I, I agree with everything you said, the thing that I find difficult with him is like, he seems to do a lot of stuff very, very well. And when, like, maybe this is the cynicism that I'm, I, I'm fighting against because I want to be optimistic about the national team. But there's like the cynical side of me that thinks like, well, if he's really good at so many different things, is that him being this exceptional player or is that him maybe being ready to move up a level? Uh, because in, in this game, uh, against Dunkirk, I saw him fighting for literally everything that was in his vicinity in the air. He never backs off a challenge, even if he's going up against somebody more physically imposing or he has to close ground to then challenge for a header. I think his fight for every single loose ball stood out to me. Similarly, his fight, like, all the time stood out after he scores that goal, as you mentioned from the restart, he goes on a full sprint charging down every single person who receives the ball. And that could be a like, okay, like that's a, an 11 year old scored a goal and now they're up for it. Like you could see it that way, but instead it just, it felt like a thing that will endear him to us national team fans. And I think probably endears him to his coach and his teammates that yeah, he scored, but he's not really all about like, like celebrating himself or sort of basking in his glory for the next five minutes. It feels like not not that but instead he's just ultra motivated to go keep going like after the team after the opposition to try to create chances to try to make something happen and that level of effort I think will endear him to a lot of fans and it certainly was a thing that stood out to me from this game that effort feels like something that translates right it feels like that can be a skill or an asset that he has that will follow him if he moves up to league uh, or if he moves to a different league and plays at a higher level than the second division in France that's a good thing, and I think that's a good takeaway from this game from Joe Akini. I want to add to our combined takeaways, I want to add something that I think he can work on, something that I think he can develop, and then we can flip around back to the positive Please. stuff and maybe talk about the goal. Right now, I think Joe Akini can be sharper in his hold-up play. I don't know if you saw this, Taylor, but when he he would drop down for Khan against Dunkirk, and he was starting as a number nine, but he would move deeper into midfield as number nines often do to help hold the ball up and spring those counterattacks. When he did that, I think he he lacked that sharpness. He lacked the clean, crisp touches to settle the ball immediately as it came to him. And then he also occasionally lacked the sharp passing to spring a teammate forward or at least mm-hmm. to, to settle the ball for Khan that would allow them to then move forward as a unit. So that's something that I'm looking for. If he's If he's showing that right now at his current level, that's something that needs to be addressed and needs to be improved. And I'm sure he knows that. 
But now from watching this game, if we're talking about how to evaluate players at a lower level, that's something that's in the back of my mind for Joe Akini when I watch him in the future. Is that a pattern? Is it a trend? Or was mm-hmm. it just kind of a one-off thing in a game in the middle of the season? To make it even murkier, like I think a lot of what I was saying about McKinney at Schalke sort of applies here. Not to say that uh, like uh, Khan, I think is how, is how you say it. We're I'm going, going off of it. your pronunciation. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, like I like. I take your point, but then I wonder, like, if he has better runners who are making more incisive runs, or if he has more options around him, or players who maybe just have a, that next level ability to get him behind or to combine quickly, does that make him be better? Does that make his decision making work that much faster? So, to some extent, I feel like one thing he can do is maybe just you know start looking around for for a move to a a first division team or to another competition where maybe he will have a little bit more talent around him. Again, not trying to dismiss what he has accomplished with that club, what that club itself is accomplishing. Just that, like, it's tough when you see those moments of like, well, does he know to play that ball? Could he play that, like, flicked with the outside of his foot over the top into an on-running, on like, uh, teammate? Or are those runs not happening so then he doesn't think to make them? Again, it's a chicken of the egg situation, and I'm not quite sure where I land on it. It's hard to say, right? And we don't know what's going to happen with his future. I do think, though, I, I think this level that he's at right now is fine for him. I think he's okay. showing well okay. and showing good things, and that's encouraging to me. But I also think there's room to improve at this current level where he is right now. And so I don't think he's necessarily outgrown the level, but he's he's still developing within it, which I think is a good place to be. If we can pivot real quick, if we can pivot to the goal, I think, because other than that, I yeah, don't please. have a lot else to add on Joe Bikini. I think the biggest takeaway on this goal for me and his game in general from this game was his movement in the box. I think Joe yep. Akini's movement is really sharp. In in the build-up to the goal that he scored in the 45th minute, it's just before halftime, Joe Akini's on the, the right channel or, or maybe in the middle of the field, somewhere in that area approaching the box. And as he moves into the box, he does a little sidestep to shift into the blind side of a Dunkirk defender. The ball's on the left side. Joe Akini just made that shift on the right side or at least in the middle of the field. And he shifts, and and all of a sudden, he's in no man's land. They don't know where he is. They can't track him. The ball comes into Joachini, and he slides in for the finish and scores that goal for Khan. I think that is almost emblematic of his movement and of his ability to exploit space in the box, and I like that. I like it a lot, too. I like any time that Ford tries to get away from like literal touching distance, it makes such a big difference because if you're a defender and you're tracking the ball, but you're also trying to track your, your the player you're supposed to be marking, if you can touch that player without looking, you know where they are. You, if you can make physical contact, you sort of don't have to take your eye off the ball or what's developing. But if that player moves away, now the defender has to move with them or they're maybe discombobulated or they've taken their eye off the ball for a moment and that opens up other opportunities. So I agree with you that I think just those little, little adjustments, but then the sort of decision making maybe that's the word maybe it's not but just sort of like once you realize like this is what's happening the ability to read the game I guess and understand where that ball is going to be and how you need to get into a position to get any body part to it to put it in on goal ideally that sort of switch being flipped is another thing I really like so I'm with you in terms of his movement in the box I would extend that as well to his movement outside of the box for the third goal uh, they do end up winning this game 3-2 so that third goal is necessary Uh, at the time I think it would put them up 3-1 maybe but 
He's leading the line. He drops all the way back into midfield. He basically comes towards midfield away from the opposition goal or the opposition attacking third. And he gets the ball and there's a quick one, two. There's a, co- a couple combination passes. Then uh, another player, I forget his name. I apologize. is played in. It leads to a goal. And if you watch it again, you'll note that when Joachini goes, I think the defense is so focused on him because he's been a threat, uh, both in the air and on the ground. He pulls the center back with him who tracks him 30 yards. And now there's a huge gap that has opened up for teammates to run into and balls to be played into and goals to be scored from. And if you're Greg Berhalter and you're watching that, I think you're only pleased by his level of fight, by the technical proficiency he does seem to have, albeit at that level, but also the movement off the ball and awareness of what that can create. That all feels like stuff that Greg Berhalter really wants to see and really appreciates. And I think maybe some of my hesitation with him or my criticism is rooted in that this position, the goal scoring number nine striker position, feels like the most vulnerable, biggest question mark for the national team. And so I think when there's a huge question mark, rather than be excited about like, oh, there's lots of different people who could fill it, I think I'm inclined to be more critical because I I don't know who could fill it the best. And so I want to make sure that we have all of our options properly evaluated. And I think it makes me a little bit harsher than I would be on another player who maybe did the same things. I'd probably be more hyped, more enthusiastic about. So maybe that's just a good reminder that I shouldn't let my uh, anxiety about it position with the national team influence the way I evaluate a player who scored a goal and I would argue set up another. No, I think that's fair, but I also think it's good to be a little bit critical. It's good to to look and to add in that context and to look at a player and what they do and be measured about it, especially when it is a position that has so many question marks associated with it. Right now we're in that data gathering stage and we saw some more data points from Joe Akini and a lot mm-hmm. of them were good. Some of them weren't so good, but we're getting more and more of them and that is a good thing. All right. So that's uh, Nico Joachini. Uh, we got two more players to get to. We are, I think, over an hour at this point. So we don't have to spend too long with either one of them, though. I think we could probably have done 40 minutes uh, on the two combined. Yeah. Let's talk Ono to Soe first, who uh, gets the start for Wolves in their loss to Burnley. Did not go the way I had hoped it would go. I was, I was pretty excited for that one. I was hoping he was going to score the game winner. But I think my I, I tweeted that like my evaluation of him was essentially that if he did anything positive. I I was all about him. I was going to be leading the hype train. He certainly did some positive things. I also saw him do some I wouldn't say necessarily negative, but I, I felt like he was trying a lot very often, that he was trying to take people on. He was trying to dribble it at uh, defenders, and sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. I felt like he got kicked a lot, fouled a few times, maybe a few other ones that could have been fouls but weren't given. And so it, it was a slight mixed bag for me. Again, I think maybe that's being a bit harsh given where he was playing and what was being asked of him. So I would turn it to you, Joe, and ask for your thoughts on, on uh, Owen Otisoe's performance yesterday. First of all, non-Owen Otisoe related, Reverie in the in the Wolves onesie was adorable. <laughs> and if listeners haven't Thank seen that, that picture, you got to go find it. It's it's very cute. <laughs> it was, it's a credit to – I said this before, and if, if they're listening – We've been given like uh, lots of stuff from uh, from our registry, from from people, from our family members, but also listener, listeners have been very kind in sending uh, both children's books and and books for us to read about parenting and little things here and there. Ryan sent some stuff. Joe, you sent some stuff. It's very much appreciated. A listener did send us that onesie, and I have like the stack of uh, like it's not gift receipts, but like you know the, the note saying who sent it to you that I have not yet been able to go through. It's all kind of accumulating. So if you are that listener, please let me know. 
send an email to Taylor at Total Soccer Show or tweet at me, but I would like to publicly thank you because it's a great onesie. It's really, she seems to enjoy it very much. She wore it all day. Even if it didn't bring Wolves success, it made me very happy. Uh, and then Wolves official were kind enough to send me a, a Grove jersey, which was also very kind of them. So it was a, it was a really nice time to get to watch that game with her. Uh, again, wishing the result had been slightly different. Yeah, of course, of course. And I'm glad that. That at least we could see an American playing for Wolves, right? How yep. cool is that? It's very it's cool. special. It really is very, very special. It is. And Otisoe, this is a weird and kind of awkward transition, but Otisoe is kind of a special player himself. He's a guy who who has a lot of potential, and we're just now getting more and more data on him, more and more moments that we can look to and speak to from his time on the field. He played some against Chelsea before this game against Burnley, and then he got his first Premier League start in this game and played 60 minutes. We're getting those pieces. We're starting to put the picture together. And I tweeted out a summary of Owen Odesoe's game or what I thought of his game. Oh, I didn't see this. Yeah, so, please, so, so I tweeted out a little two or three sentence thing on him. And I'm going to read it because I think that summarizes my thoughts, especially as we're getting along here. It said, Owen Odesoe is very raw and awkward with his movement. I'm, I'm going to add in something here. He's like six foot two, six foot three. He's mm-hmm. very much trying to figure out his body. He's, he's very raw and awkward with his movement, but he has some nice tools in his back. Great defensive range, strong in the air, and surprisingly good at finding space between the lines and receiving on the half turn. I'm into it. That's what I said after the game, and I stand by that now. He's got a lot of things that I think are high upside skills. He's very much trying to figure other things out. Simple movement mechanical things like we talked about with Robinson, but he's got time to figure that stuff out. I liked what I saw from Otisoe playing in a very strange hybrid midfield forward line role. He's a guy who I think has a bright future. I think, uh, yeah, and I think, thank you for pointing out the positioning thing, because when I saw him listed in the starting 11, I was sort of like, oh, he's going to be like a Jao Moutinho, uh, Ruben Neves, like replacement, or he'll go with them. I assumed he would be a more defense-minded midfielder, and maybe they'd push somebody else further forward. To see him sometimes playing as a target striker, sometimes playing as like a, a number 10, sometimes dropping in a little bit deeper, but it was, I think, a lot to be put on, on his shoulders. A lot of that probably rooted in Raul Jimenez not being able to play, uh, but I I think that was like I, when I tuned in, I was like, all right, where is he in the middle of the field? And then the camera like was focused, I think, as Wolves were defending. I kept not seeing him and he stands out. He's pretty big, as you mentioned. So then to suddenly see him kind of leading the line, I, I think it, it changed my perception a bit just because that's not a thing. I think maybe he has done a lot or certainly we've seen him do a lot. So I think probably having to figure out a relatively new position as your first Premier League start is uh, a bit of a challenge, a bit of a task. And I think overall he did fine. Yeah, I'm with you. I think fine is a good way to put it. He wasn't great in this game. He didn't do a ton of exceptional things, but he showed flashes of what he can do, what he will continue to improve on over the years. I think we're starting to get a feel for how Owen Odesoe plays. I'm starting to get a handle on pronouncing his name. We're all headed (laughs) in the right direction here. We are. I, I would even maybe extend it to like good fine because for a youngster coming in in that role, I wouldn't have been surprised like to, to bring it up again if they had gone the like didn't stand out in a negative way. Like he just kept the ball moving, didn't get caught in possession, but didn't necessarily create anything because he doesn't want to make any mistakes that he was willing to take people on and try some stuff. Maybe does speak to the backing from Nuno, his manager, but also maybe his confidence level and willingness to try stuff. So maybe from that vantage point, it was a, a more not to say it was a bad performance, but just I think it was a like, yeah, OK, now let's see what happens next. 
and now I'm thinking like, yeah, okay, and that was pretty good, and that was exciting. So yeah, overall, I'm pretty pumped. Let's 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 keep it going. I also do embrace fully the idea that he should be given. I doubt Pedro Neto will give it to him, but at least for the national team, he should be given the number seven shirt. I forget who tweeted this, so apologies for not giving credit for it. But the idea uh, of Owen Otisoe, Owen Otisoe, the double O being double O seven, is a big. Big draw for me. Yeah, I'm all about that James Bond tie-in. I think we absolutely need to make that happen. And if we don't, <laughs> I've got some serious questions to be asking the powers that be. That's fair. <laughs> uh, we'll talk, I'm sure, more about Owen Otisoe, given that he is a teenager. And we'll, uh, I'm going to guess, get at least a few more games for Wolves this season. But we're going to close up this show. I guess I should ask you, Joe, is there anything specific about Owen Otisoe you would like to see as we do move on, uh, since we've talked about a few other players and what they could be doing? Or is it just too small of a sample size at this point? I just want to see him continue to to move along with the passage of time so that he can continue to grow more comfortable with his build. Because I think if he gets that sorted out over the next couple of years, he could be a, a very strong player. All right. All right. So he could be a very strong player. Let's close out by talking about a currently strong player. Uh, for the most part, it's Christian Pulisic, a player who I mentioned earlier. And it is what I want to go back to for a moment, because watching him uh, in action for Chelsea... I think, like, naturally, I, I think of him as like, oh, he's playing. Like, oh, he's not hurt. And I don't know if that's unfair, if that's just me remembering, like, a few moments that loom larger than others. Like, do, do you... I hesitate to ask you this question because it feels so hot takey and that's not what I would like. I would like to hear your like honest appraisal of him, but do you consider him to be an injury prone guy? Like, do you have those same concerns or do you think it's just been maybe like a few unfortunate moments and overall he's, he's a reliable performer for the national team? I'm totally on team injury prone here. I don't think it's, I don't okay. even think it's that hot takey though, right? Because we see, we see the numbers. Pulisic has been injured for a lot of games. He's missed a lot of minutes over the last few seasons since he since he's even broken in in Europe at all. Mm -hmm. We see the same thing with Tyler Adams. I mean, there are guys in the pool that struggle yep. with injuries consistently. And I think that's that's the reality of where we are as a well, it's the reality of where those players are. I don't even need to make a grander, broader conclusion there. But yeah, I think I think Pulisic is injury prone because he's been injured a lot. And it's and I guess that's that's just like I hesitate. You're right. It's not hot takey. I think it's just like, I don't know. Is he an injury prone guy? It just feels like one of those easy conversations to have, but I think it's a conversation that's necessary because I think it is what holds back like my enjoyment. I'm speaking very personally here of Pulisic because though I see him do these incredibly exciting things, I think in the back of my head, there's always a like, yeah, but is he going to be fit next week to do it again? And perhaps that's unfair. I don't even mean for it to necessarily be a criticism. I think I'm just trying to explain why whereas with Weston McKinney I'm just like yes he's getting minutes and it's great and it's awesome Pulisic doing the same thing I think I just have a little bit more of a hesitation and I think that's why because he might be lights out one game but then the next game if he's not there due to a like mild knock or a, a strain or something like that I think when we're talking about a World Cup, ideally, where you've got a number of games in a short amount of time, like you kind of can't have those question marks looming or you prefer not to because it does, I think, impact the squad and squad harmony and consistency. So that's, I think he is probably a I hope he's playing type of player until uh, we see him, I don't know, start like six games in a row, which he may well have already done. But uh, maybe let's make it 10 games. How about that? But I think with all that said, I continue to see those things that do like as everybody else has great seasons as Gio Reyna does things for Dortmund and Tyler Adams for Leipzig and McKinney for Juve and Des for Barca. I still see Pulisic do things 
that make me think he is our best player right now. That's not a conversation we have to have other than to say that Paul Scholes saying that he's the closest Chelsea have come to Aiden Hazard or he's seen a player be to inform Aiden Hazard made me very, very happy, mostly because Paul Scholes can evaluate a midfielder, if nothing else. And I think then watching him for Chelsea and seeing how quick he is in terms of just his his level of acceleration, how quickly he can move on the ball, but also in his decision-making and his evaluation of when to play, when to get into the box, when to hold off, when to try something, when not to try something, when to have a shot. I just, I think his decision-making in my mind right now is his strongest asset. He's so quick. He's so fast. And again, those are different things, but he is both of them. He's mm-hmm. quick with his decision-making. So even mentally, that can extend to the to the mental side of the game as well. Certainly. He's just lethal in the open field. When he gets out into green grass, he's going to make things happen. And he made things happen against West Ham. He he drove forward through the middle of the field. He started on the right side or on the left side, depending on the moment in this game. Most of it he spent on the right. But his his biggest moments were him breaking into space, playing off of Tammy Abraham, and then driving forward with the ball and, and either finding Mason Mount or finding Timo Werner on the left side. It was Pulisic making his direct movements in that open space faster than everyone else on the field, breaking into the attacking half and then making things happen. Christian Pulisic is so good, and I I can see why Paul Scholes thinks he is so good, because, man, his ability to impact a game at full speed is just so... He's so good at it. I want to say elite. I want to say world-class, but I don't Mm -hmm. like to use those terms, really, because they're so, you know, they're so fluid and they're so ethereal, almost. But he he is filthy good in the open field when he has the ball at his feet. Yeah, and it's, again, it's a strange thing. It's similar to Serginho Dest for me of he has moved again with these sort of strange uh, categories. He has moved from a like, I hope he can do it. Like when he makes a smart pass, I'm like, yeah, okay. He didn't mess that one up. Like he is definitely moved from that into a, I expect him to do stuff. I expect him to not look dissimilar from say Timo Werner or uh like N'Golo Kante or any other player who like those big name players for Chelsea that, everybody knows that are known the world over. Like, I don't see him doing things that are like, ah, he's not quite at that level. If anything, I see him doing more than some of those players and having some really good, like decision-making and good runs and good, like just overall, I just think he's just, he's improved so much, or maybe my, like, I've just watched more of him. So maybe he hasn't improved, but my appreciation for what he does has improved. But either way, I, I like, I guess I'm glad we're closing on Pulisic because I might end up just gushing too much, but I just, I see what he does for Chelsea and I can only be excited about a player playing for a team that I otherwise maybe wouldn't be rooting for as much. Honestly, I don't have a lot else to add on Pulisic mm-hmm. other than that. He's a high level Premier League attacking player. Yep. He's one of the best forwards in the league. And that in itself, that statement in itself, right? I think is is impressive. It really is. Uh, so I don't really have much else to say aside from, I think I watched Dest. Like I watched like the the I watched that game, and then I watched the individual moments of Dest. Then I watched the individual moments of Musa. Then maybe Weston McKinney. Then Christian Pulisic. That was kind of my order in prepping for the show. And my big takeaway was just if if it all clicks, if Greg Berhalter can find a way to get everybody on board and get everybody going. The U.S. men's national team will be the fastest it's ever been in terms of just the raw speed, but also I think it will be so fast in how it moves the ball because so many of these players are playing for teams where they move it quickly and possession is prized and technical ability is prized, but just also the level that most of these guys or a lot of these guys are playing at – 
like I just you could see a lot of position changing and 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 quick one twos and quick combinations and passing triangles and overloads on one side and there I just I'm really excited for what this team is going to be because of how quick they are in both aspects uh, of that word. What a perfect note to end on because I think that summarizes these players, so many of these players at least so well and it gives us all something to look forward to as we look ahead to so many men's national team games next year i'm so ready i am so ready as well and i look forward to covering those with you mr lowry uh for now we will maybe bring this one to a close there will be one more show this week uh myself joe and ryan will be together tomorrow to uh continue a tss tradition of giving out some Gifts or really like theoretical gifts that we would like to give people. Some of them will be serious, some of them less serious, but we're going to give some soccer related gifts uh, on the show tomorrow. It will be the three of us. Then that will be it for this week. We'll, we'll be back the week after to do the same stuff that you all have <laughs> been doing and the stuff that I have done previously. Uh, but until then, Joe, since uh, you have been so generous with your time, anything else you'd like to add? I've got nothing, Taylor. It is great to hear your voice again. I know I said this last Thanks, time buddy. that we did a show, but it... It is so nice, and I always enjoy chatting about soccer with you. And I don't think I called you the wrong name this time, (laughs) despite being on the same amount of sleep. So it's improving. We're getting better here. Uh, But for now, Joe, thank you again for taking all the time to talk to me about all of these many players today. You got it, my friend. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening and continuing to listen and support the show and for the uh, kind words that have been sent to Ryan and Joe because they have been so great and also so helpful in allowing me to not panic constantly about the show because they've done such a great job. So thank you for that. Thank you, uh, Joe and Ryan, for that. And on that note, we will talk to you all again very soon. 